Welcome to the Indigenous United Podcast, a production of the Native American Student Development Office at UC Berkeley. This is a podcast about Indigenous issues important to us as Indigenous students at UC Berkeley. We'll be interviewing Indigenous scholars, leaders, artists, and activists, and keep you, our listeners, up to date on current events in and around campus. Since we are recording here uh, at Berkeley, we'd like to recognize that Berkeley does sit on the territory of Huichen, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chichenyo Ohlone. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm indigenous sovereignty and will work to hold University of California Berkeley more accountable to the needs of American Indian and indigenous peoples. In today's episode, we're bringing you an interview with Karina Gould, a local indigenous activist. But first, Let's go to the news. So, welcome to our very first campus native news segment. So, Fallon, what'd you do this weekend? Oh my gosh, what did I do this weekend? I saw these awesome co-hosts of mine at the Indigenous Red Market in Fruitvale yesterday in Oakland. Oh, well, we had a whole slew of amazing native artists there. We had Waffle Bus Kitchen there. We had Bigfoot Indian Tacos there. Really great food. So many great Native artists in one lineup. That was just amazing. Atea, who else was there? Well, Superman was there. He gave an amazing performance. And before his performance, he actually danced with some of the youth from the Intertribal Friendship House, which was the sweetest thing to see. And we were able to thank him in person for letting us use his track, Prayer Loop, in our intro and the track somewhere in our transition music. He's an amazing artist. He's Crow from the Crow Agency in Montana. A lot of his tracks are on YouTube, so if you like the music in our podcast, go and check him out. Welcome to part one of two of our series on the Ohlone peoples. Today we're bringing you an interview with Karina Gould. Karina is the spokesperson for the Confederated Villages of Lejean and an activist fighting to protect ancient burial sites. She co-founded and helps lead Indian People Organizing for Change, who sponsors the Shellmound Peace Walks to raise awareness around the desecration of sacred sites in the Greater Bay Area. She was born and raised in Oakland, California, the territory of Huchin, and is a grandmother raising her future generations on territory. Karina was instrumental in securing Segorate, a 15-acre sacred site that sits along the Carquina Streets. This land was repatriated via a cultural easement after a 109-day occupation. Her current work includes the co-founding of a Native woman-led urban land trust in the Bay Area. So for part one, we're bringing you an interview with Karina. Part two, we'll have an interview with Val Lopez, who's the chairman of the Amamutsum tribe. But before we get started with Karina, we thought we'd take advantage of our own Ohlone scholar, <laughs> Alexi, and a member of our podcast team. So Alexi, tell us a little about the Ohlone peoples. There are eight different Ohlone groups, and all of them are federally unrecognized, which means they identify as confederate villages, communities tribes, nations, etc. How do you feel about federal recognition? The thing is, is that we've been petitioning for 30 years to get recognized. It seems like such a slow process. And in these 30 years, we've 
had so much cultural revitalization outside of this federal acknowledgement process. And so Karina does it by forming a nonprofit. My tribe does it too by forming a nonprofit is we circumvent this whole federal recognition process and get back to maintaining these relationships with our land. And we've done fires, we've done stewardship projects, and we've gotten rights through showing that we can steward our homelands. So I feel like some of these Ohlone groups are actually showing why federal recognition isn't necessarily important for cultural revitalization, which is, I think, a really important part of being a Native person, mm -hmm. personally. And I understand that not everyone has access to that, to their homelands. And so a lot of Ohlone people still live in or around their traditional territories and technically have access in that way. They don't have any rights to their homelands necessarily, but there are people who are displaced from their homelands and literally cannot occupy those spaces. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're privileged in that sense. And some people out there, I think, because this is a question I hear people ask me a lot when I present it stuff, um, is that federal recognition is something that folks aren't familiar with that process. And I'm, I'm glad that you said that you guys have been in that fight for 30 years because that's something that's pretty standard. Like federal recognition is not something you can just get quickly. It's lots of years. It takes a deep knowledge and specialists in the law, specialists in the history of your tribe, band, or nation. And it's lots and lots of paperwork. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into getting that federal recognition and it sort of is a inherently settler-based process. And so it doesn't play by the same historical rules as, as our maybe indigenous communities would recognize themselves or each other as. So you're playing a game that's not set up to serve you, but you're having to play it in order to get your needs seen. And heard. Well, and what's so interesting about what you were saying, Alexi, is kind of not seeking that recognition is in itself an expression of your sovereignty, that you're not seeking for the you know, U.S. government to recognize your sovereignty, but you're expressing it regardless of whether or not they're recognizing it. Yeah, exactly. I think having to prove to the state that you're what they define as a tribe is kind of demeaning. It's kind of tough. You evaluate your own indigeneity and your own nativeness in a different way as well when you're applying and trying to prove that you're native to them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a bit toxic to try to look into those conversations of what a continuous tribe is who gathers all the time, who has elected officials all the time, and all of that when there was so much oppression in the past that the government doesn't really recognize, oh, because the government didn't ratify that treaty, is the reason why we don't necessarily look like or fit the qualifications of a federally acknowledged tribe today, right? It also sounds like from the interviews we've been doing that Ohlone identity is further complicated by the Spanish-imposed mission systems, and Karina addresses this a bit in her history section, and I think you've spoken to it too, Alexi, in terms of like the complexity of your own identity because people needed to relocate to missions because the options of continuing to live on their homeland were sort of removed. People were forcibly taken to the missions, yeah. yeah. People were forcibly taken and then some left of their own agency, right, because the land was changing so much that it was not tenable to remain. Yeah, the Spanish the like, took over the land and took all their resources. And yeah. so this becomes kind of like a melting pot of other indigenous identities of people who have been here for a long time and who have definitely built this area into what it is and yet maybe were originally originally not quite so local to here. Yeah, and it's amazing to see that the people who did survive through the missions were able to still pass down certain traditions and still maintain their culture in a way when it was so suppressed and when all these groups were brought together. So it's almost a story of resiliency with these different peoples. Um, I have ancestry that are Chumash or Tamian or Yokuts, 
were brought forcibly taken to these missions and then we're still able to continue these traditions and continue being responsible to stewardship but yeah my tribe identifies as the descendants of two different missions and as descendant groups of the missions it's not necessarily that we're like speaking for the traditional territory right around the missions but it's really hard to politically reorganize or organize after the mission system because the political organization of indigenous peoples in central california was a lot different than what could be achieved after the Spanish mission period. Fallon, I really liked when you asked Karina the question about the mission curriculum here in California. You know, like when I was in middle school and elementary school, we had to go through that mission block and I had to tour a mission and learn about how great the mission system was, you know. And when you brought that up and asked Karina about that, it really brought back a lot of memories for me. If y'all could hear the reaction I just made with my face, it's like heavy eye roll. Okay, because I did not know this until I was taking Katie Kalia's class on California Indian history in the Ethnic Studies Department about two years ago. And she started talking about how in California, in like fourth grade, I think they do this mm-hmm. whole missions, what do you call it, segment of school. It was part of their curriculum. And kids were like literally building mission buildings with like sugar cubes. And uh, somehow the school system and these educators were not making the link between how that could just re-traumatize traditionally historically traumatized populations whose ancestors were forced to build these missions. I just didn't realize that that California, you know, had a had a segment for small children to learn that and to have to recreate that that action of literally enslaved. Uh, indigenous labor. So that struck a chord with me. And when Karina was talking about it, I I asked her if the reason she was talking to these fourth graders was like in conjunction with this missions segment in the schools. Um, and I guess she said, no, she traditionally was giving these talks in, in other formats to children like um, at, with this part of museum programming and stuff like that. I think she also said that they mostly quit teaching the mission segment in schools about two years ago. So that's great to hear, but also that it was going on so long. It's just crazy to me yeah to be able to sit down with Karina and just talk about these things and her giving us a perspective and knowing that we are native students too and uh, relating on us on that level was really powerful and it's really cool that because she is local native to this area here in Berkeley that this is our first episode too I think that's really special yeah I mean we really wanted to start it off with focusing on Ohlone history because this is the place we're recording from and we think it's really important that we honor, you know, Ohlone peoples and and share their history with our listeners. Speaking of Ohlone history, as a history major, I just have to say I geeked out real hard at the whole first question section with her because, you guys, she seriously gives, like, a master class in Indigenous Bay Area history. Take notes. It's well done. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to dive in. On a sunny Saturday in Hoochin, which is now known as Oakland today, Fallon and I had the opportunity to sit down with Karina. Thank you so much for coming out and speaking with me. It's always wonderful to talk to students and to uh, the larger community about our people. Since you are an indigenous person to this land, it would be great if you could give us a background on the history of this place. Our histories are not being taught in public schools or in universities. I really believe that there's this paper genocide of our people that continues and is happening right now today. 
we tell these stories so that people can get more information, but it's it hurts to tell the stories over and over. It's like a, a fresh scab that keeps getting picked off. But I think that it's important for us to do this storytelling now so that when my children or my grandchildren uh, are my age, that this story will already be known and that we don't have to continue to tell it. I think one of the interesting things that people don't realize is that with the creation of what we now call the United States, that we in California went through an entirely different colonization. What I like for people to think about is that in 1776, when folks were fighting for their independence on the other side of the country, what we now call the United States, we were just being colonized by the Spanish coming up with the missions from the bottom to up to here. And so our colonization was totally different. It doesn't look the same as our relatives that live on the East Coast. When I talked to fourth graders, I said, imagine this. It's like, how did, how did people even get, how did the Spanish get our land? How did they get our land? And oftentimes I'll ask kids, do you know what calling dibs is? <laughs> you know, and you know what calling dibs is, right? If I have a pink box and it has one donut in it and you call dibs, what does that mean? And so imagine around, you know, in the mid-1400s, there's a Spanish ship floating down the coast of California. And on this ship, there's people that are from Spain. And they don't get off the ship. They just see this land that's there. They don't know that there are people there. They don't get off and talk to the people or see the land. They just float on by and call dibs for Spain and the crown. And it's so, it's crazy that you call dibs on someone else's land, their home. And they don't come back for a couple hundred years. And they're freaked out about losing this land they called dibs on a few hundred years before because Russia was working with California natives up in northern part doing fur trade and they were afraid that Russia was going to come down and get the land they called dibs on and so what did they decide to do was they decided that what they had done in Mexico to the indigenous people there by using Spanish missions was to do the same thing up here and they said well we were able to take the land and enslave people and you know and everything's good and we could do the same thing in what is now called California. And so they found this guy who was like super excited to do that work. His name was Junipero Serra. And he created the first nine of 21 missions that totally obliterated many of our languages and our customs and our ways of being on the land in a very short amount of time. Two of those missions, Mission San Jose in Fremont and Mission Dolores in San Francisco, my ancestors were directly enslaved at. And so in the short 99 years that the missions were around, um, our whole life changed as indigenous people on lands that we had been on for thousands and thousands of years in a relationship with. When I talk about a relationship today of indigenous people on their own home territories, anywhere in the world, there was a way that you stood inside of the same circle with everything else that was alive that you were not outside of the circle, that you weren't something better than anything else that was inside of that circle. Human beings have put themselves outside of that circle today, and that's why we are in the mess we are on this earth. We forget where our place is there. You know, there are things that are written about our ancestors when people got to our lands, that the lands were so well manicured that and so well taken care of that they were 
more beautiful than the gardens in Europe. And it was because our ancestors knew what their place was and what their responsibilities to the lands were and how to take care of them. We had songs that we sang to the waters and to the earth and to the plants. And so those responsibilities got pulled apart when the mission systems came. And I often tell the fourth graders, I was like, imagine going home. When you get there, there are some people in your house that you've never seen before. And they're speaking a language you never heard of in your entire life. And in this language, they're telling you you have to go with them. And you have to leave behind everything you know. You cannot pray the same way. You cannot eat your food. You cannot dress the same way. You cannot live in your houses. And sometimes you might not even see your relatives. And would that be a scary time? And the kids are always, yes, yes, yes. And imagine if you didn't like it there and you ran away. And that they would send soldiers after you and they would drag you back and they would beat you or kill you. Would that be a scary time? And all the fourth graders get it. Their parents who are sitting in the background and their teachers are freaking out that I'm talking to fourth graders like this. But that's our truth. Our truth that is never told. Our truth about how we survived this. Our land was stolen a first time through that process. Then it was stolen a second time because Mexico decided that they evolved and decided that Spain had too much land up here and what is was now their land they built and they squished down the missions to a smaller piece of land and created ranchos. And in our territories, these ranchos were thousands and thousands of acres of land, not just small ranchos. Peralta had over 144,000 acres of our territory, the Peralta Rancho. And there was Bernal, and there was Vallejo, and there was these names that we hear every single day. Yeah right in the Bay Area and don't realize that our ancestors went from being slaves at these missions to being slaves on these ranchos. Our lands were taken from us in this very violent way. Imagine that people came here with these swords and guns and, and these ideas of violence that we could not even fathom. Today I can't even fathom people being beaten, whipped, 50 hot lashes every day. It's ridiculous to think about the violence that came to these lands and to have it happen in such a quick amount of time. People died of broken hearts. Women decided that they were going to suffocate their babies because they couldn't imagine them growing up in these kinds of ways. People died of malnutrition because the food that was given at the missions had less nutritional value than what people were given at, in Auschwitz. We don't talk about that in the history that we teach our fourth graders. We talk about how wonderful it was that the Spanish missions came because the Indians didn't know what to do with this land. There was such an abundance here 200 years ago. And I want to say that 200 years ago, this is a very small blink. I have an auntie that's 80 years old. We have another elder that's 85. So in two of their lifetimes, that there was no such thing as hunger and homelessness in our territory. And you look today and you see thousands of people living on the street, thousands of people in what is now called this great America that are hungry. When 200 years ago, there was nothing, that was not even a concept. Prisons were not a concept. Every creek in the Bay Area, you could drink fresh water out of. There was salmon and rainbow trout going up every creek. There was an abundance here. I have a nephew who sings. I know songs from all over the country. And he told me one time, he said, Auntie, he goes, you know there's a difference between our songs 
and the songs of people that are in the middle of the country. So the Lakota songs, the people that are living on the plains, they have these songs that are songs about, I'm so pitiful, you know, help us please. Because they had horrible winters that were so cold and they couldn't always find fresh food and all of those things. But here in California, our songs are about abundance. Thank you so much for the abundance that's here. Thank you so much for all that you provide. There's so much here. Then you look at the Bay Area today and almost all of our creeks are culverted and underground and you can't see and they can't breathe. And we all know that water is alive. It's not just a commodity. My ancestors, our ancestors were super smart. And that's what I always tell the kids, no matter where you come from in the world, our ancestors were super smart. They had to figure out how to live in the world a long time ago so that we could all be here together today. So my ancestors went after Mexico lost that war to what is now called America. They signed a treaty of Guadalupe de Hidalgo. And in that treaty, it said California natives were supposed to get some of their land back. And true to the American government, they failed to meet that treaty as well. And some of the very first laws created in the state of California were extermination laws of California native people. And so how do we survive that next form of genocide? And so my ancestors quite literally pretended that they were Mexican. And they stayed on a ranch in Pleasanton, California. Um, and created their own township there, Indian Town, and survived in that kind of a way until it was safe for us to talk about being Native. So this was not that long ago. My mother, my auntie, my uncle were taken from their mom and thrown, um, sent to boarding school up in Oregon, Chamawa Boarding School. And so our children here, even though we're not federally recognized, were still taken to boarding schools. And uh, that was in the 40s, I mean, in the 50s. And so you yeah, think about all of these crazy things. This is the history that happened here in the Bay Area. All along, we were being annihilated in different ways and trying to figure out how to survive all of these things. And so it was never being able to catch your breath, trying to figure out how do you do this? How do you survive? And our ancestors did, and they survived um, through remembering the old stories, remembering songs. My great-grandfather was one of the last speakers of the language and he held on to the songs. You know, I always say that there were people that our ancestors whispered in their ears and told them that they had a job and they didn't know. And so that guy, J.P. Harrington, he listened. He went on this mission, not just for our languages, but for many languages that were going to sleep and found these people and talked to them and wrote down all these notes and recorded them on wax cylinders. And we are able to reclaim our languages because of the life he had, right? And it was, I believe, our ancestors' dreams for us today to get our languages back, to bring this balance back into the world. You know, this guy, Nels Nelson, uh, who worked at UC Berkeley, created a map of all of our shell mounds in 1909. And to look at the Bay Area, no one would know that there were shell mounds here or what they are. And many people still don't. You don't learn about it in school. Nels Nelson knew over 100 years ago that there was so much development in the Bay Area over 100 years ago <laughs> that these places were going to be obliterated. And he created a map. Because of that map, we're able to pinpoint our spiritual places and where we're supposed to pray and what our obligations to those places are. Those guys that listened to our ancestors um, really have helped us out. When we did the work around stopping the canonization of Junipero Serra a few years ago, 
and we did that work um, out in front of the missions, you know. Mm -hmm. It was really then that not just California Indian people, but Native people all over the world began to talk about the doctrine of discovery and how that put us in this category of half-human and how it was that uh, European sailors could go all over the world and take land on behalf of Europe because people of darker skin were only half-human and we only had half-souls and they could take the land by sword or by cross. I think that it, you know, we are blessed to be here in this world right now to talk about the issues that came up not that long ago for us and to bring back our songs and our prayers and our, our dances um, in a way that we're supposed to. So this is where we're at today. We're uh, just a blink ago. Our ancestors had to deal with this but learned how to survive in such a way that we are still here today to talk about it. Thank you for sharing that. And for me, one thing that um, I've experienced at Mission Carmel is a docent telling me that my ancestors were Stone Age people that needed the technology, kind of what you're talking about. And that really struck me. And that's, I mean, that happened like four or five years ago, and it's still in my head, just kind of ringing there. Yeah, what you talked about, about um, having to revisit the history and to open the scab also makes me think about, well, I guess it's kind of necessary right now if we want to move forward towards healing do we have to continually keep ripping up this scab in order to to move forward, to get people to acknowledge the, the real truths, you know? And that can take a lot of time to talk about the history all the time when we're trying to do great things like the Segorate Land Trust. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm wondering what you think about like that, because, I mean, you are a very busy person. You have a lot of responsibilities and roles, and so prioritizing your time for healing is really important. I was wondering what like how you prioritize what you want to talk about or what actions you want to do today. Wow, that's a good question. I think a lot of the work that I like to talk about now is the work that we're doing at Segorte Land Trust and how we're moving forward. Yeah. I think that it's important that the little people continue to hear the stories because they are great at telling their parents the stories. <laughs> and then their parents just maybe start to dig into finding out what, it, what, what the real history is. And so I'm trying to get uh, younger people to tell those stories. Um, so really, it's our job to not stay stagnant. I will say that one of the issues I see with other movements is that they have not moved young people forward with them. Mm. And those movements are beginning to die out. And we have to make sure that it's, this is not a movement. This is actually tribal sovereignty and rebuilding things that had been asleep for a while. And so it's important that we all move together. But really the education part, I think, is a part of really holding on to who you are. Finding your own way of telling your story about where your people came from. And then living with those things, those hurtful things, actually helps us to grow. So I had heard that the term baloney is an exonym that doesn't necessarily define people who are linked or have been linked politically. And so I'm wondering like, how it is that you specifically identify and how you feel about the term baloney. So I identify as Lashon, um, and because when we began to take back our languages again, that's how my great-grandfather introduced us. I am Lashon. We began to decolonize our own minds. It's like, what does that mean that I am Lashon? And Lashon places me at a very specific place. It's along the Lashon Creek. It's uh, connected to a waterway. 
that reaches that touches the bay. Our our mountain is Tjushtak, and so we know where our mountain is. We know where our waterway is, and as indigenous people all over the world, that's where we're always connected, right? That's our center of our world, right? And so we have always been that. Costanoan was this word, and I tell this to to fourth graders when I tell them is is an old old word that came from the Spanish. It means people from the coast, and they just they took us and they said they didn't they didn't talk to us about it they didn't know that there was differences i was like our languages were different our songs and our dances were different north to south you know i said we had similarities but that's all they saw they said oh they all kind of eat the same they kind of all look alike they all live on the coast they're coast to no one and they kind of threw us all together like that but there are eight different nations of people with eight different languages and eight different creation stories i said so they throw us all together but our languages are different we're responsible to different mountains and to different waterways. And so we have different obligations to the, the land that we were placed on, we were created at. And so began this whole idea of saying, okay, so I can show you geographically by language base where I'm at. And so would say that I am Chochenyo and I am Karkin because that shows you where my language bases were. The Confederated Villages of Lashon actually is a confederation of people that were brought into Mission San Jose. And my family uh, tribe is the only tribe that is uh, made up of all five of the different nations that were brought into that, into the mission. And so we are Ohlone, we are, um, we are Bay Miwok, we are Plains Miwok, we are Napian, and we are uh, Northern Yoka. And so all of those nations are are us because we were all intermarried through that mission, mission system. And so our territory actually is huge. It's Alameda County, it is Solano, it is San Joaquin, it is Contra Costa. You know, so it is this huge piece of land that we are really responsible to because all of our ancestors come from those places. But even within language territories in Ohlone area, there was never one overarching tribe in that huge place. If you just take Chochenyo, Chochenyo goes from, the language base goes from right underneath the Carquina Strait all the way down to mid San Jose out to Highway 5. There is absolutely no way that only one tribe would be in charge of all of that even 200 years ago. So there are multiple tribes that have always lived on the same land and they have responsibility for pieces of that land. And so when I talk to people, I often talk to people about what does it look like when you ask for permission to be on someone else's land, right? A long time ago, there was different ways of being on land. Even if you were coming from another village that was, you know, 30 miles away, there was a way of knowing where the borders were and whose responsibility because you acknowledged that that land was being taken care of from by some other tribal people and so you would stop at that natural border whether it was a creek or it was a river or, or it was some other and you would put up a smoke fire and you would wait for someone to come and get you and you would ask for permission to come onto their land and that while you were being brought back to the main village people were gathering food and games and gifts for you they would not ask you right away what it was that you were coming for they would say to you come and eat with us come and gamble with us come and have a good time 
And so all of those things would happen before you would talk the business was. But you would definitely acknowledge that you were in someone else's land and that they had responsibility. And today when we talk about land acknowledgments, we forget that there's all of those things. You know, Ohlone people are not all the same. We have specific responsibilities to specific pieces of our territory and our land. And those responsibilities comes with knowing the songs and the name places and knowing when you're supposed to gather and when you're supposed to um, to sleep and when the stories are supposed to be told. And all of those things, many of those things are still asleep and we're waiting for the dreamers to bring it back to us. And so while we're doing that, it's important for us that's now here to realize that we don't have to do it all. Some years ago, there was people that broke up the territories for Ohlone people, and I'm doing that in quotations for folks that can't see me. Um, but today, I think it's important for us to work together to try to figure this out together, that there are nations that we could have nation-to-nation -nation relationships with each other, and we're building those relationships right now. But there's no way, you know, there was multiple tribes in every territory that took care of it. And so I think that's important for the general public to start to wrap their minds around because they want one person, they want one nation they can go to. And it's not as simple as that when you're talking about California Native people, especially <laughs> in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's like, yes, you know, so I, I just want folks to, you know, yeah, let's underline that. There is not one um, one folk that you can go to. So I asked Karina about the land trust, the Segorite land trust, because um, it's been a recent move to have these native-led land trusts recently. And you know, land trusts are usually these white environmental groups who are just interested in holding land for preserving it and just doing a nice hiking trail, right? And I feel like a lot of these native land trust agendas are a bit different than what the traditional land trust model is. And so as a co-founder of this land trust, I just was super excited to ask Karina about the background of building and creating a land trust and where the idea came from. And she told me about the Shell Mountain Peace Walks from 2005-2009 with co-founder Janella LaRose, who is the co-founder of Indian People Organizing for Change and Segorite Land Trust. Oh. And then Karina goes in to talk about how she got involved in linked in with the greater Native Land Trust community with Beth Rose Middleton. Our friend uh, Beth Rose Middleton, who is a professor at UC Davis, did her dissertation um, and created a book called Trust in the Land, and it's about Native Land Trusts. And at, she was pregnant at the time that the occupation was happening at Segorite, but she was watching, and she invited me to a meeting in Southern California with Native Land Trusts. And there was a handful of folks that were there and I didn't know why I was going because I didn't know what the hell a land trust was at the time, but I was trusting. And, it, and I think that's what Segorite did was it really opened me up to say yes to a lot of things. And so I went and I met incredible people that were native that were doing land trust to save their own territory. But as I sat there, I looked around the room and 90%, 95% were guys. So I asked my new friend, Dune, I said, so is this a boys club? And he laughed and he said, yeah, pretty much. Not just Indians, but non-Native people. And I came back with this idea of doing a land trust with John Ella. And I said, I think this is the tool that we need that we didn't have. 
And I said, but, it, you know, I told her the story about the boys' club. And we started having conversations. And as the conversations grew, we said, well, this needs to be a women-led land trust, an indigenous women-led land trust, because men have been in charge of land for a long time. And we look around the world, and what has happened to the land has also happened to women and our bodies. The extraction, the rape, has been this violence that has happened. Indigenous women have songs for our waters and our medicines and our baskets, pieces, songs for our children and our children's umbilical cords go into our land and our responsibility, the way we speak is different. And so even when we're bringing back language and my daughter is our language carrier, that we begin to have these conversations about don't take our language and take it from Spanish to Chochenyo to English because the language of the Spaniards was also really this patriarchal language. So how is it that our people would have really spoken? How do you take this in a feminine voice and change it? How do we do this? And so that our language is not something that we just recreate based on, on what we have, but based on what we really feel and believe and know intuitively and so it was really about doing that so it was about changing this this whole feeling this dynamic and it's not about getting rid of men because we have our sons and our and men working with us on the land trust but it's really about how do we come together because through that violence our indigenous men have lost so much as well and so how do we bring that balance back together so that we learn that and then People often say, well, this is an Ohlone land trust, but it's not an Ohlone land trust. It just so happens that Ohlone people, this is on our territory, we are in charge of it, but we also have to look at our relatives that have come here on forced relocation policies of the United States government. And so many of the people through my work of working as a case manager of women that are coming out of drug and alcohol programs or in DV situations. I worked in an intertribal community my whole life in the Bay Area. And many of our families that are sick here that are indigenous is because they have not been able to go home after those forced relocation policies. They came here and did not integrate did not assimilate as they wanted them to, but have created their own community here and need the medicines of being on the land just as well. And so we created this indigenous women-led land trust specific so that we can be inclusive of people that need to have connection to the land. But then as we start to do this work, it's more intersectional. We know that all of the people that live in our territory now need this healing. And so the leadership is all Native women. Our tribal people, of course, are doing it. And we have connected. And our first piece of land that was given back to us is on Lashon Creek, who our tribe is named after. It's a half mile from my house that I could walk there. It's this crazy thing that these ancestors continue to show up for me and remind me that I'm not doing this by myself. Because that is, how huge of a coincidence is that? I don't think so. That comes from prayer and for from the sacrifices that people have done on by doing those walks. The first piece of land that we hold as indigenous people in 250 years since that first contact with the Spaniards. And that land remembered us. And so we said, okay, well, let's put an arbor on. And it was John Ella's idea. She goes, you should have an arbor. And I was like, um, okay, what does that mean? But it meant that we put a call out to people because we couldn't find the redwood that we needed. 
and we prepared the land. Um, and about a year ago in May, we stood it up. I live in a great in a great time where things are are looking up. That this land trust is bringing people from all walks of life to us. That people have are lear learning about the history of of the Bay Area, and are really wanting to figure out how do we fix this together. Um, nobody's going home, so we need to figure out how to be good hosts and good guests on this land. And we cannot be good hosts if we do not have good guests. Your words and what you share is really powerful, and I really feel a lot of emotion after you share this with me. And it's really powerful that um, you're still here, your ancestors. Um, are being honored, the future descendants of your peoples will have opportunities and maybe the, the stories will be more well known and so healing is happening, healing is going to continue to happen I think in the next few generations too and it's really beautiful. You've shared a lot of stories and if you could just tell us or tell the listeners where they can find you online or how to support you in the best way in your community. Yeah, I you know really appreciate people coming out to the land. We don't just have the, where the arbor is. We have a, a place in West Oakland. It's a community garden that has beautiful fruit trees and um, we're opening it up, I hope, for some people to be able to garden there this year. Um, we're also taking care of a plot of land um, at Gill Track in Albany. Um, and so we're looking for folks that want to come out to the land when they can. Um, look up Segorite Land Trust online. They can find out about Shaumi tax. And Shaumi in our language means a gift. And it's an honorary tax that people can pay into that helps us to do the work, to take care of the land, and to do the operations of running the land trust. And so we're very blessed in, to be in the Bay Area to have many people that have been um, really supportive of, of paying their tax. Um, it's a way for us to build relationships. Uh, so those are some great ways of doing that. Folks can look up Beyond Recognition and the movie. We have lots of cards for Shumi tax. If people want to know about that or want to distribute those, they can come and pick some of those up at our offices. And yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we have a website. So we look forward to working with people in all many different ways. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks, Green. We hope y'all enjoyed this episode and that you tune in for our next episode, which continues this history with an interview from Val Lopez. Thanks so much for listening. We want to thank the Native American Student Development Office for helping us produce this podcast and really giving us the infrastructure to do it. And we want to give a super huge shout out to Superman for letting us use his song Prayer Loop. 